Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today's podcast is a very special double episode recorded in Paris in the last couple of weeks with dear friends of the bookshop Rachel Cusk and Simon Scammell Katz. We begin with a conversation between Rachel and myself about her extraordinary recent novel Second Place, recorded in front of a small live audience in store back in March. Then we decamp to the gallery at 28 Rue Saint-Gilles, where Simon's absolutely transcendent exhibition, La Femme de l'Alterité, the end of otherness, has just opened and where it will run until April the 16th. There I talk with Simon about his exhibition and both Rachel and Simon about Quarry, their newly published collaboration for Sylph Editions, Cahiers series. You can find out more information about visiting the exhibition in the show notes to this episode. Thanks for listening. Rachel Cusk's second place left me shocked. Not because it's an obscene or violent book, although it would also not be correct to say there aren't depictions of violence and obscenity within it, but rather because by digging down into the questions that shape and constrain human lives, the lives of women, artists, and women artists in particular, Rachel Cusk so powerfully upsets readers' assumptions about the novel's characters and about ourselves that it is difficult not to feel that one's understanding of the world before reading Second Place hasn't been irrevocably shattered. Although perhaps that's no bad thing, for as the narrator of Second Place writes at a moment, shock is sometimes necessary, for without it we would drift into entropy. What are these questions then that Rachel Cuss writes into the remote marshland home of M, a writer, her second husband Tony, and daughter Justine, at the moment that L, a famous painter, takes up their invitation of a residency in an isolated little cottage on their land, their second place? They are questions about art, morality, freedom and fate, and how our world engineers these fundamental concepts differently for men and women. And they're questions that cut to the quick of our lives, such as which does more damage, living within the constraints of our fictions or breaking out of them, only to be exposed to the indifferent savagery of, ex of existence. All of which to say, I think Second Place is an absolutely extraordinary book. And the only reason I hesitate to say it's a product of a novelist working at the height of her power is that I think it would be reckless to underestimate or presume to understand what Rachel Cusk might produce next. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Rachel Cusk to Shakespeare and Company. Um... I'd like to begin at the beginning of um, of Second Place. Um, I found the beginning startling for for two reasons. Firstly, because of the the the, the content and which we would, which we'll probably come on to talk about, but also because of the form. Uh, because I think uh, my most recent experiences with your novels was with the uh, with the trilogy, um, and and within the first few sentences of Second Place. I had the sense that you were doing, again, something fundamentally different 
um, with second place to what you were doing um, with the trilogy. Um, now, my, 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 my sense when I read the trilogy was in some way you sort of turned the novel inside out. And now I kind of had the feeling that you had sort of turned it back around again and were investigating what you had found through, um, through that manipulation. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear, first of all, how it started for you. Was there sort of, did you think of certain formal constraints that you, that you wanted to impose on yourself? compared to what you'd done with the trilogy or did it come perhaps more organically with with a voice or with a character uh well in fact even just the um description that you give of the book at, uh in your introduction is so um st storyish mm -hmm. <laughs> if you see what i mean the the the, the my um instinct is to kind of I, I guess wince from those mm. things, and and I suppose that reminds me that that uh, the the very difficult position I'd got myself into uh, writing the trilogy and kind of structurally, technically understanding my way out of um, narrative mm -hmm. of any kind, and and uh, almost taking, I suppose a a sort of irreversible moral view of mm. um what stories are and how they're told and um i, I mean i i've used the phrase the pornographic situation before mm. in a conversation with you i think <laughs> so i'm so i'm going to use it again uh that seeing that kind of inventing and making up and saying oh there's this person and that that person here's what they do together mm. and uh you can imagine it for yourself and i'm going to um help you do that uh that there's something so ugly about it mm. and i think what i felt at the end of the trilogy was exactly that prospect of of um being a bit on the like in i can't remember whose story it is where on the little rock in the sea with the, mm. <laughs> the sea rising and nowhere to jump to so uh a re-embrace of um i guess concrete reality mm. was in my sights and uh thinking about what that could look like um and especially all of the thinking that i'd done about um the concreteness of of visual art of any kind of of um plastic artistic creation uh and and where that sort of morally um mm. situated itself that was so so different from from language um that i think I sort of went for a kind of block-like ugliness of, <laughs> of of situation, um, but in a putting it in a in a very inverted world, um, which then very strangely in in the writing of second place became a pandemic world yeah. outside the window of the room I was writing in. But I had already decided on those conditions as as the conditions of the book, so that was a, a kind of yeah. weird experience. One thing I, I find particularly hard when when talking about your work generally, um, particularly since the trilogy and now now with second place, is that very sort of activity of trying to articulate what you are what you are doing with it and how it is um, how it feels fundamentally different to that sort of um, I guess that sort of the the narrative practice that you that you just um, described. So when when somebody recently asked me about the the form of second place. Uh, the first thing that came to mind was sort of there is 
it does have an epistolary form but it, again it's a very sort of loose epistolary form the 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 narrator addresses uh somebody called jeffers and beyond that um as sort of uh readers just confronted with the text we we find out very very little um i think possibly just one thing which i'll come on into in a moment about about this jeffers and the relationship between the narrator and and this person but could you just talk a little bit about that sort of landing on that sort of what i think yeah described as sort of a loose epistolary form and how it helped you uh into the into the book um well i mean i just think we're all of us in such a massive moment of um a sort of critical moment in terms of relationship to truth and and legitimacy and identity and uh for me uh the creation of anything at this point is um a very dubious act um taking up any kind of space mm. creating anything that that therefore has to be responded to it has to have a future um or or be disposed of in some way um so i mean we were debating whether or not to mm. introduce the the kind of origins of this book uh but you know in this context um they sort of seem I don't know, it seems a, a relevant thing to mm. say, but I essentially wanted to make the book a, a kind of found object mm. um, in that the, I did find uh, a, a um, book, an out-of-print book that I didn't know about, even though it uh, concerned D.H. Lawrence, and, and that I'm a bit of an amateur D.H. Lawrence scholar, and I had never read this book, and... So I read it for that reason and, and then forgot about D.H. Lawrence. Um, in fact, if you want to be cured of an admiration for D.H. Lawrence, then <laughs> reading Lorenzo and Taos is the way to do it. Um, but, but what I heard in this book was, a, a, um, I suppose, a, or what I found in it was a relic of female voice, um, this sort of discarded voice that, and the discarding of it and, and the continued existence of it seemed to say something about um the history of female utterance mm -hmm. being in a very sort of virginia wolfian way um both existent and non-existent mm -hmm. um that it was there <laughs> but it isn't it isn't there it doesn't and in terms of of a book you know it has been written and you can still buy it in a secondhand bookshop mm -hmm. but it doesn't kind of exist anymore in in a, a, a legitimate way so so sort of getting my hands on this old book I thought if I could just live in this if I could move into this old book and make my book in this book uh that would solve so many problems about why does my book exist um which I think is at this point you know any as I say the question about why something should exist is is mm. to me a, a sort of fundamental one and and um so yeah i had a kind of hermit crab uh <laughs> strategy <laughs> so that so that so the objectness of it and indeed the form of address you know that that book is addressed to jeffers oh, and you don't know who jeffers is mm -hmm. i didn't know i mean if you read it in the time it was written you knew that it was robertson jeffers who was a famous poet at yeah. the time but i didn't know that and so you just accept that there's jeffers and you're you know mm -hmm. so i kind of went i went with that i went with the concreteness of, of what it was yeah um, yeah yeah i i 
have to admit, on the, the first reading, I came away thinking that you had um, told us literally nothing about Jeffers and the relationship between uh, M, the narrator, and Jeffers. But it was only through when going through my notes that um, I, come I came across a, a specific statement that the narrator makes uh, where she writes, you are a moralist. And it will take a moralist to understand how it was that one of the fires that started that day was allowed to keep on smouldering over the years. And that suddenly struck me that um, when that is the only thing uh, we find out about Jeffers, and as readers, in a sense, at least as a reader, I felt almost as, I, as if I was being addressed as Jeffers. In some way, the, the text was sort of directed towards me. I felt that there was perhaps an indication that not exactly that, that, that your narrator or, or you are asking the reader to take the, a moral stance, but to sort of to, we're asking them to kind of morally invest in the story in mm. some way. I mean, I think the, the question of like where, if you think about, you know, periods of literature in which um, represented, you know, verbal literary representation <clears throat> was so clearly based in uh, the legitimacy of an identity, a, a, a region, <laughs> you know, a, a nationality or a, a, a field of experience. And, and, you know, I think the novel has gone so far away from that. Um, the authorial position can be so unjustified and and doesn't have to be justified. Um, you know, your reasons for, you know, the whole idea that research has <laughs> become such a, a sort of central uh, job description um, for, for literary writers, um, I think does create a kind of moral uncertainty in, um, I suppose, between reader and writer. Um, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to experiment with in the trilogy was kind of giving content back to, not just to characters, but giving it, just handing it over to readers and going, well, there you go, <laughs> that's the content. You know, you 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 have to, yeah. you know, enact it yourself in a way. Um, you have to uh, animate it. And um, so... I guess the the as I say the question of of like what what path I could find sort of out of that rather nihilistic mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or not nih nihilistic but but kind of puritanical place I ended up with in in the trilogy um, that that did you know my questions about. Uh, the legitimacy of of um, narrative, you know, they are moral questions, and and um, I guess that feeling of of something being told to somebody else falls very much within my um, rule of if you you know if anyone can see it and hear it, then it's allowed to you're allowed to use it. You know, if any person passing could could witness exactly the same things. So so. And, and I mean, the other thing that should be said is that uh, partly my experience of writing a play um, 
which is another story, but uh, I did write a play and it was put on on a stage and I had to sit in the audience, which I never, ever, ever want to do again. And there's a reason why <laughs> I chose to be a person who sits on their own in a room and writes things and never has to watch the reaction of people reading the things. Anyway, the experience of doing that made me see much more the possibilities of drama. And I've always been a great reader of plays. I hate the theatre. I hate going to the theatre. I can't understand acting, or, but, I, but I love reading the the text of of the play and and the things that drama can do that the novel struggles to do um and shouldn't really struggle to do it should not be that difficult and it's almost like the the novel is um trying to um i mean almost drama is too hard maybe drama could be a bit e easier sometimes but the novel is too easy and it, it doesn't ever ask uh and, and it always amazes me that people when they go and watch a play are really prepared to sit in a seat for three and a half hours <laughs> and you know and take something that can be so comfortless and difficult and and yet novel writers can't get away with that and and it's still in the same language economy so so it's a kind of funny thing um, just to just to be be sure i understand it, when you say novels are easy do you mean for the for what they ask of the reader as opposed to what a, a, a play might ask of the, the the spectator i ask that just because um my feeling and it's coming back to this idea of a sort of having a moral reaction and a moral duty to the novel at the beginning uh, of second place there is a moment where uh the narrator feels that she essentially abnegates a moral responsibility and it struck me that in a sense um if you're addressing uh, the narrator is addressing jeffers and says that they're a moralist one thing i think that sets second place apart from a lot of uh, a lot of novels is you in a sense you refuse to do the moral work for the reader you kind of they you're not you're not leading us necessarily to a particular conclusion or a particular moral judgment in a sense you're setting things out in a particular way and then saying essentially you're the moralist you yeah, yeah, you yeah. do the well, work that, is, is that mean, the kind of hard work yeah because you, the fact is that the novel um thinks that everything has to be explained mm -hmm. and drama works by completely the opposite principle mm -hmm. okay drama is enacted but you can still read the play you don't have sure. to see it enacted you can still read it and um and it's that sort of I suppose I think rather crippling um force of explanation that that you know even the even in the, the most sort of marginal models of of narrative like psychotherapy <laughs> for instance uh you're explaining who you are you're explaining um it, it's all the same processes at work and and I think the the power of inaction um which is is slightly uh as i say for me i don't know muddied in some way by by actual inaction that actors do uh but what the playwright relies on in terms of inaction um it's 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 essentially this very very limited sphere that is not explained and and things have to explain themselves as as they do as they do mm -hmm. um so I guess that's what I thought I would try to use was a, a feeling of um, almost 
something just not very beautiful in that. Right. <laughs> um, the, but that had had a kind of I don't know brutality a power to it that that um, I mean for me in this book was very much about I guess middle aged confrontation um, right. and and the kind of ugliness of of that idea of mm -hmm. of people emerging out of um, what was you know possibly sort of graceful and and um, fluid in their lives and and kind of confronting endings and each other and um that seemed uh, you know that in itself is is a kind of play-like scenario i guess yeah, um, yeah yeah in um there we've just been setting um novels alongside plays whereas in second place the sort of the the two art forms in a way which are, are set alongside each other for consideration uh writing and painting uh, so as i said so m the uh the narrator is a writer although we find out not particularly writing much at the um, apart from these uh these, these like these. all the best writers <laughs> <laughs> whereas l is a, a painter also at a certain uh juncture in in his career um but what what there's one there's one uh reflection that i found particularly interesting that comes from um from l um about the difference between painters and writers um, and he says, I've often thought it's fathers who make painters while writers come from mothers. Um, and the narrator says, I asked him why he thought that. And mothers are such liars, he said. Language is all they have. They, they fill you up with, uh, with, with language if you let them. Um, and I'm just, I, I'd like to explore that sort of that relationship between, I guess, painting as an art form we apprehend and and novel writing as an art form we apprehend because whereas <clears throat> i suppose um, as you said with with playwright with with plays it has to be enacted it has to be uh, sort of embodied with that's not that's not the case with painting and yet the manner in which we apprehend a painting and the manner in which we apprehend a novel is vastly different mm. i mean i think that uh, i mean i worked this out ages ago but but part of what that um uh, what I was reminded of in in writing that scene and and therefore putting those lines was uh, in my all my questions about why um, artists live as they do and why writers are as they are uh, the the fact that writing is cheap <laughs> free almost um, is is such an explanation uh, of its identity and and of what it can and can't do and um you know to to do anything else to paint paintings or indeed to stage a play or to you know you have to be um in a very different relationship with um capitalism and uh concepts of bourgeois life and um all sorts of other things and uh you know the novel has its being its roots it's being in a kind of disempowered relationship to capitalism that that um makes it very easy to <laughs> very accessible um but also i think that that makes the the writer um a, a less singular person in some way um the 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 appeasement that that the novel goes in for and has to go in for 
simply because of of what it is of you know the textual um nature of it um so that the relationship of that i guess to power and egotism and um and gender most importantly because i think probably all of this started with the idea that um which is you know pretty central to second place um a kind of realization of about femininity that that uh you a cultured whether self taught or or you know fortunate to be introduced to culture by by other ways that you have absorbed culture you have uh improved yourself by means of it you have thirsted for you know these these um thoughts and expressions and representations and and been nourished by them and 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 become sophisticated yourself in in your responses to them and they are masculine products and you are a woman uh you have read <laughs> whoever you've read you've read philosophers you've read great writers you've gone and looked at great paintings and these are these are masculine products and and um that is really the question in in the book uh what who am i and what is art <laughs> uh and and ha i'm full of this stuff i the narrator um uh, but actually uh what is it and why do i um i guess fail to properly evaluate the things that i as a woman have and have created myself and that might include my children uh, it might include my home um she invites this you know rather i worry i've worried that the kind of l figure is, is maybe a bit too broad brush strokes sort of you know egotistical <laughs> white male artists but um you know there have been a fair few of them and they all you know uh, they they tend to share some traits and um so but but you know th those two people looking at each other at, at this very very unromantic age that they're at beyond you know out of all sexual narratives involving each other um or romantic narratives or even familial narratives um you know that was that was really the the um question one thing that um that, that comes out of that i think is um i think it's twice or maybe even three times during the the novel the narrator uh refuses to describe herself as an artist or denies that 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 she is an artist she says you know this artists uh like this response in this way i know because i don't do you know that's not that's not me um whereas the figure of l um sort of every part of his being seems to kind of be uh directed towards or, or sort of let's say filtered through this concept of him as the artist so whereas whereas m is uh a writer but uh she also defines herself uh clearly as in relationship to her daughter so as a mother and as a as a wife and as a as a host uh in this um of of, of this artist it seems conversely with l even when we're talking about his childhood it's almost sort of, you know, portrait of the of the artist as, as as a young boy kind of thing. It is sort of, and it struck me that that is something which perhaps society allows men to do much 
more easily than it than it allows women to do to kind of to embody i guess this one role that they choose for themselves and i mean i think that is you know that is what we know about um how these men got to be who they are that you know they didn't care about their wives they didn't care about their children they you know there's countless examples of it they and they were they were artists mm-hmm. they were great artists um and you know the narrator of this book uh has not been able to be that mm-hmm. um because she has cared about people and has felt that it was her um duty to care about them and uh and i think the you know where the book gets to in the end which is a a, the beginning of a a realization that these things that she felt that as a woman she was duty-bound to care about and therefore she herself could never become a great artist are as good as you know the the uh things that he created by by not caring about those things in in a way or that there's there are other values there are other values that that um and and you know the the existence of her um uh much more um what's the word uh reassuring um husband who who whose values are um you know very distinctly different from either of the other two characters um you know I'm not sure that I would have thought of that myself (laughs) had that not been in my in my found text um this this husband who doesn't like D.H. Lawrence even though D.H. Lawrence actually really likes him and decides that he really wants to hang out with you know this kind of normal person um the normal person is not remotely interested in and feels sorry for him and and says it must be absolutely awful to be a tormented artist to be so unhappy to make people hate you so much to endlessly betray people and and let them down and and you know what a terrible way to live and I'm going to go and you know mow my field or you know um and take care of nature and care about you know um the 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 correct things um as I say I'm not sure that I actually would have thought of having that um touchstone in 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 the book yeah. um there seems to, it seems to be connected um in a way to to this concept of freedom i suppose which which comes up repeatedly um in the book because there does seem to be this recognition amongst um with the the narrator that um of the the value of these 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 other these other things the value of her relationship with her husband the value of her relationship with her daughter the value of the landscape on which they they live and yet there's also the she also seems sort of troubled by the fact that uh she does she's not permitted the freedom to decide uh of sort of attributing value just to her artistic creation in a way that that l is so even though even though it has led to sort of a sort of a trail of destruction, even that that choosing that trail of destruction seems to be something that is sort of almost systemically denied to her. Mm. Well, and that that is, I guess, um, one of the things that I I discerned in this tone that I found of um, the author of uh, Lorenzo and Taos was. Um, a kind of 
I don't know, uh, a, a slightly new take on mm. saying I have never been allowed. I have never had the freedom to. I have never, you know, I've been, um, you know, that, I guess for me, I thought, you know, I've written a lot about ways in which um, female destiny is is uh, made very difficult to escape, um, and that you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. You know, if you <laughs> escape this kind of female destiny, oh, by the way, then you're in another one where you haven't done, you haven't had the child, and so then you, you know, that that again is a. a, a another kind of imprisoning um narrative and and um at a certain point and and f you know for me reading reading this book was was um that point um of of thinking that perhaps there might be another way of of looking at it and um that that way might be to to uh, rather doubt the, or or at least examine in a slightly colder way, the free the freedom of the free person, um, and and what it had actually um, added up to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still think that that I mean, funnily enough, I've been asked my entire writing career about my relationship with Virginia Woolf, which has been um, <laughs> not very important, <laughs> particularly. And um, But I find more and more, I find myself more and more thinking about um, what she says in A Room of One's Own, uh, about what women's literature would look like, what a female li literature would look like, what a female sentence could be. Um, what would it be? Uh, because... Uh, the only you know the only place we we seem to have got to is is in you know not just in literature in so many parts of life is is you know equality um having the same as men um and you know this confusion of of um male and female values again is you know something i've written about a lot and how it um works its way into Parenthood, marriage, um, understanding of yeah domesticity and and um, and certainly understanding of achievement and status and um, and you know those are all fights that, that needed to be fought. They're good fights, you know, of course. But but um, at some point, the the question of of uh, what what one is. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think it, it actually becomes more and more of a question uh, after all of the conventional definitions of of what you are, you know, when they've been concluded, and and you know, you're you're no longer actively somebody's mother. You're no longer actively, you know, um, a lot of female things, and and it sort of seems a, uh, yeah an opportunity yeah. i guess that's one of the areas that i found most fascinating about the book was this sort of uh sense of her quest isn't quite the right word but this sort of this sense to sort of try and understand <laughs> i suppose the, the 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 nature of the of the self like is it something that we invent is it something that once it's there can be kind of dissolved or can be sort of uh completed um by by certain action there seems to be a kind of um 
a paradox that almost presents itself between she she talks uh, about a sort of a divided and a compartmentalized self um, that uh, I think particularly sort of women are uh, are sort of uh, built up with in our in our societies, and for that self to be completed, which is a term that that L uses when talking about the self. It also it, it also needs to be sort of destroyed in a way. You sort of you complete it through destruction and through most likely a sort of a, a, a vi- an act of violence of some of some kind. Well, I think I I think the other thing that um, is, is I guess a, a, an important part of of that process is this um, desire to express the desire to express oneself. Um, that she she uh, realizes is is literally a, a a lifelong such a lifelong part of of this identity that it, that it actually is is completely um, has fused with the identity that the feeling that you you are you yearn to express yourself um, you are going to express yourself um, is very much you know in a way if if there was an answer to the virginia wolf question of what what does uh the female voice sound like what does a woman's writing look like it might almost be that <laughs> it might be this this un uh because you know part of what one one part of one's answer to what what does women's writing look like you know is is uh, silence. It looks like silence, and um, but actually, maybe it's not silence. Maybe it, it is this uh, pre-expression, uh, this yearning to express, and um, you know, some of the questions I ask in second place are about you know the the integrity of that yearning. Is is it in fact, uh, as I said before, these these products of of male expression that that. Um, that seem to describe one, <laughs> to echo one, to reflect one, um, male or female, um, that that fill you with that yearning. Uh, is it something about the gap between those products and and oneself? Is this yearning actually a, a female thing for that reason? Because there is this gap um, between the 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 person who made this painting or this uh piece of music or and and yourself is that kind of what it is um so or or in fact uh, is yearning a, a a female characteristic uh the yearning to to express um because i mean she does have there there are some kind of um sort of gritty bits of the book where she says oh well I I tried yeah. <laughs> I tried to paint a painting and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to come to that um, connection once again actually between writing and painting but just on that subject of, um, of, of that that yearning I suppose and coming back to this idea of um, completeness one thing that Elle says at the moment is that sort of actually completeness of self was something that never was of interest to him actually it was sort of it was almost something that i think i think he says he sort of he he he, try, he runs away from and just sort of uh 
with the hope that it will just perhaps never never catch up with him. And so I do I do wonder if that connects yeah to this idea of maybe uh if if that completeness in a sense is made available to you by society, it's not something that you necessarily desire or value. Well in fact that was the bit I was going to read. So yeah. I'm going to read it. <laughs> oh no I won't. I'll have to hold it and hold open my book at the same time. I'm just going to read a little two pages just for people who haven't read this book. <clears throat> so this is L, the arrogant artist, talking to M, the broken woman, and telling her a bit about his life. I'm trying to find something in the figure, but perhaps it isn't there, L said. Some brokenness or incompleteness. You know, I've never wanted to be whole or complete. Why not, I said. I always imagined it was like being swallowed, he said. Perhaps it's you that does the swallowing, I replied. I haven't swallowed anything, he said calmly, just taken a few bites here and there. No, I don't want to be completed. I prefer to try outrunning whatever's after me. I prefer to stay out, like kids on a summer evening stay out and won't come in when they're called. I don't want to go in, but it means that all my memories are outside me. He began to talk then about his mother, who he said had died when he was somewhere in his 40s. He had always found her physically loathsome, he said. She was 40 herself when she had him, her fifth and last child. She was very fat and coarse, where his father was delicate and small. He remembered the feeling that his parents didn't match, didn't go together somehow. When his father was dying, El was often alone at his bedside, and he frequently noticed fresh bruises and other marks on his father's skin that only his mother could have put there since no one else visited the sick room. He sometimes wondered whether his father had died just to get away from her, but he couldn't believe that his father would have wanted to leave him there by himself. He realised later how much his father had tried to keep him out of his mother's path, which is how El came to start drawing. While his father did the accounts or the yard work, El was nearly always by his side and it was something his father thought of to occupy him with. His mother used to ask him to touch her. She complained that he never showed her any affection. He sensed she wanted him to serve her. He felt compassion for her, or at least pity, but when she asked him to rub her feet or knead her shoulders, he was revolted by the physical reality of her. In this way, she revealed to him what she wanted that no one else would give her. He didn't count. For her, he had no real existence. He had a memory of, sta of standing as a small child at the kitchen window, making paper chain figures out of old newspaper with a big pair of scissors, his father elsewhere, his mother doing something at the stove. The discarded scraps of paper rained down on the floor like snow as he cut. He remembered the sound of her voice calling him over to hug her. Occasionally she would summon him in this way, as though her own loneliness had suddenly become unbearable to her. She had been strangely moved by the sight of the figures when he unfurled them, all joined together by the hands. She kept asking him how he had done it. He realised then that he had made her credit him with a certain power because she didn't understand him. I remember always being frightened that one day she would eat me, he said, so I made things to show her, to take her mind off it. He learned to draw by studying animals and their anatomy. The slaughterhouse gave him unlimited material. 
The thing about dead animals was that they stayed still long enough for you to draw them. His father looked carefully at all his drawings and gave him advice. I've often thought it's fathers who make painters, he said, while writers come from their mothers. I asked him why he thought that. Mothers are such liars, he said. Language is all they have. They fill you up with language if you let them. Thank you. There's so much more I'd like to talk with you about, but I w since we've just read that passage, I will um, just ask one final question about um, the, 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 the role, I guess, of parents um, in this book. And, of course, that's something you've written about a lot in, in different ways over, over the years. But one of the things um, I find fascinating about Second Place, and in that passage you read, I mean, we get actually more detail, I think, of um, Elle's parents than we do uh, about uh, M and her relationship with her parents and her relationship with her daughter. And yet, while there is, in a, in a sense, very little actual sort of detail, I felt a very, very strong sense of that sort of three-generational relationship of between M and her mother, one essentially a relationship defined by criticism. Um, and then there's a moment where M reflects on when Justine, her daughter, was was born, and this kind of odd feeling um, that well, she writes that Justine arrived on this earth and seemed to want to stand in the same spot that I stood in, only I was there first. And then we sort of essentially jump forward twenty years, and we see their relationship as it exists while the action, so to speak, of, of second place um, takes place. And I just um, yeah, in some way, it felt like a very, um, it told me a lot, I think, about the the 20 intervening years, about how M had tried to raise her daughter, not necessarily sort of in opposition to how her mother had raised her, but certainly in sort of, I guess, in some, in some sort, of, sort of reaction to it. And that brings us, think, I think, back to this idea of doing something of value. And I think one of the the most sort of, for me, the most kind of emotionally sort of uh, charged and poignant moment of the book was the the sense of this kind of this strong relationship, uh, a, a sort of existing and sort of coming to to be between between M and and Justine. Well, I mean, it's a. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel uh, very ambivalent about. Um, the material that I seem to have been fated <laughs> to uh, use, and I mean, partly because of my scruples about material, and but partly also um, some commitment I made, or that was something that that was um, part of me uh, that that I felt. I felt I had to to um, stay watching, <laughs> you know, that I had to to witness things and describe them and and write yeah write them down that that it felt um, you know I I when I wrote my book about motherhood and and um, there there are you know there was a reaction I mean there were lots of horrible reactions but some of the positive reactions uh, were of the kind of saying. You know, no one has written about these things, or da, da, da. and you know, I never think that. I think people have written about these things, um, but they are footprints in the sand, and and um, it it appears to be still in the nature of female experience, and very much in the nature of some other um, 
experiences um that they they fade away the iteration the description of them fades away and they have to be reiterated and they have to be said again and again and again and and you know that has felt like a fate to me um and you know even in this book which, which I thought oh I'm <laughs> I'm not going to have to write about these things anymore <laughs> in fact you know there there is still in every as the sun you know in every shadow the new shadow and and light um set of perspectives that comes as time passes there's there's you know um new uh lines of sight and new visions of these same relationships as time passes over them and and um so yeah the, the that was still i found um a, a very you know very much at, at the core of of that book as of everything else that i've written so before i hand over for questions and just finally on that subject of of um of parenthood there was just one one line which um <laughs> ever since i read it really sort of resonated with me and i think possibly as perhaps a parent of a of a small child it's it's very it sort of it was destined to chime with me in a way but it just um yeah, the, I, I just like to read it because it, it it just it just keeps coming back to me, and it seems to be quite important um, in some way. Um, where she writes, uh, perhaps it's truer to say, Jeffers, that we can consider our job as parents to have been accomplished without fatal error or wrongdoing when the small child becomes visible once more in the fully grown being. And I don't know, just uh, that's it seems something sort of deeply important to bear in mind. I think in your relationship with children when they're small and as they grow and are shaped by the world and shaped by you and having that almost as a as a sort of an ambition uh for one's child yeah it just it just struck me as, a, as an important thought that i <laughs> i hope to bear in mind i don't want to tell the audience that adam has been up all night with his, <laughs> his sick child but <laughs> any lines about parenthood <laughs> resonating more than usual probably. yeah um, <laughs> She's doing all right, by the way. <laughs> I have news. Um, that is all we've got time for. Um, but the evening is still young, as Sylvia said at the beginning. Please do stay with us. Have some, have some food. Have some wine. Continue the conversation with Rachel, with each other. We have plenty of copies of Second Place, as you can see, for those of you who have not yet read it, and um, Rachel's backlist as well, available here. So please, um, if you'd like to take them up to the front, I'm sure Rachel would be happy to sign them you too um but please do join me one more time in giving a great big thank you to Richard oh Jeff. thank you thank you all for coming We're here in uh, Rue Saint-Gilles in the Marais district of Paris, joined by Simon Scavelkatz and Rachel Kask to discuss um, two things, in fact. Firstly, the uh, exhibition of Simon's paintings, Le Fan de la Territé, and then the 38th edition of the Cahier series published by Sylph Editions, which is a uh, collaboration between Simon and Rachel. Um, and I suppose that's my first question, really, um, because I use the word collaboration, but I use it advisedly. Could you talk a little bit about how this work came together, both the cahier, the text and the uh, and the exhibition? Well, I guess we were both uh, out um, in Greece last summer uh, and uh, Rachel 
was writing a, a short piece of work uh, about marble. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spent three months there and uh, in the process of thinking about the subjects that she was considering, we went to various places, um, um, Hydra, Tinos, uh, for example. Um, and in those places, I was painting, thinking about my thoughts of, of my experience of being there, the emotions I felt there. Um, uh, but at the same time, obviously cogitating also on the subjects that, that Rachel was was thinking about. Uh, at that point, there was no idea of a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was only uh, post us being there um, that uh, Dan, who's the editor of, of, of uh, the Kaye series, um, suggested that uh, it would be interesting to see uh, perhaps an extended version of the essay that Rachel had originally written um, with the, the work that I'd done uh, mm-hmm. alongside that. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't a purposeful uh, from the get-go, but uh, it, it came together uh, later on. Mm. And did it feel like a, a, um, a surprising suggestion on the part of Dan Gunn? Had you, had you imagined a kind of a collaboration Not between at all. your works in the past? No. No. Um, no, we were, we were very much... Uh, I, I'd been... I'd, uh, just was, well, just, I'd just done enough work to, to put into a show that, that went out last September... And so I was working on a new body of work mm-hmm. um, that was very much thinking about what, what the exhibition is, is, which is considering the sublime in the context of the relationship with humans. Mm-hmm. And obviously being um, at the sort of the source of um, Western uh, civilization and in, in, with references to ancient, ancient Greek, Greece, um, there was that uh, consideration of, of humans, their interaction with the land and the sea, mm-hmm. um, its ancient history coming up to date. Um, so that's what I was working on, um, and, and as I say, that's quite separate to what Rachel was thinking about at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, that concept of the sublime that you mentioned, um, perhaps to some of our listeners, that will be sort of uh, not necessarily an ill-defined concept, but something that's a little bit, a little bit difficult to grasp. Could you expand a little bit on what you, you mean by that? It's, it's, a, it's a sort of uh, a subject that's been considered for hundreds of years by mm. many, many people, um, thousands of years indeed, going back to the Romans. Um, uh, the idea or my conception of it is is historically it's been a way of expressing awe and in the old sense of the word fear mm-hmm. um, um, mm-hmm. in in present in, in be, on being presented with uh, nature in its extremity mm-hmm. um, often that being very beautiful but also uh, it could be storm it could be sunset um, and uh, historically that's been very much considered in the context of um, and the area that I'm particularly interested in, which is the German Romantics, seeing that as an expression of God, right? Um, okay. You know, the the, the the awesome power of God, mm-hmm. um, its sublimity, and that's been a subject for for painters, German Romantics, um, Turner, and and so on uh, for, for 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 many years. And that's my area of interest in relation to the sort of blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something I found very interesting reading. Um, there's an essay about your work by Jonathan P. Watts, the Vanishing Sublime, and that idea of what the sublime is and what it can be stripped of this this idea of God. Because um, one thing that kept coming back to me while, while reading around your work and also obviously while being uh, steeped in Rachel's work recently for the, 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 the event we did around second place was this idea of kind of removing a sense of story, removing a sense of narrative from, um, from our interaction with an artwork. And in a sense, I suppose this, the idea of God, this idea of religion is a kind of a story or framework to, uh, to, to this idea of the sublime. Absolutely. 
Um, what this show that we're, we've got at the moment is considering is the idea that actually um, it, the idea of the sublime now in the sense of extreme beauty in nature, um, or at least ex extreme behavior of, 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 of nature, is that humanity is utterly wound into mm -hmm. those things. So, you know, the, the smog of Los Angeles creates these beautiful sunsets, but it's smog, so that's no longer gone. So the end right. of otherness, La Fin del is exactly this idea that, that actually we are no, no longer other in the sense mm -hmm. of the sublime, in that our, our own intervention for good and often ill has, is, is an integral part of, of, of the nature mm -hmm. that we observe. Which in a sense, I guess, sort of removes any excuse we have or any escape we have in relation to this, um, to this feeling. And that's, that's one thing you mentioned um, earlier. I can't remember the exact word you, you talked about, awe, and you talked about, I think you said fear. Yeah. Um, and one, one word that I noted while looking at your paintings and while uh, reading about them was this idea of dread as well. And, and that's something which is, it's quite difficult to, to put the two together, actually, because I guess... Um, you know, or and particularly maybe in a religious context, we might associate it with this overwhelming feel of oneness or love. And yet, again, divorced of that religious context, you then have this sort of, I don't know, the, I guess the, the, the dread of, of nothingness, the dread, the dread of the void opening up in front of you. And that was the idea of vanishing sublime was that these landscapes, which are sublime in their sense of beauty, mm. uh, by the time I'm dead, 50 years time, I'd be dead quicker than that. Um, <laughs> those landscapes will most likely be gone. Mm -hmm. um, so that that dread has the other side of of, of the fact that, that this this beauty uh, finally has a, has a, has a potential end, has a death, mm -hmm. has, a, has a dread of death disappearance. One thing um, that that puts me in mind of, and it comes back to um, a, a point which we touched on in a previous conversation about second place, was this idea of the kind of the moral responsibility of the um, of the viewer, of the person who is engaging with the art. Uh, and one thing I think, if I remember rightly, that we talked about a few weeks ago was this sense of, as a, as a writer, you're not sort of giving the moral interpretation to, uh, to the reader. You're sort of almost, particularly in second place, of presenting things and making the reader do the work, I think is the expression that, that was used. And I feel there's a similar thing going on with, with Simon's paintings in a way, that there's, it's been, there's, there's not a, an, a, an interpretation given by by a text or by necessarily sort of recognisable uh, presences in in pictures. Would you say that that's a place where your work overlaps? Um, I think. Well, it's funny that actually looking at the paintings now um, all together, the fact that yeah, we do. Um, these days share uh, a, a location in terms of um, what we're saying about perception. Um, and I guess, so maybe we're like, you know, two swans <laughs> <laughs> flying along together and we're sort of separate, but we're flying over, over the same landscape. And, mm -hmm. and in the end, that seems to have brought about a greater affinity um, in terms of moving away from narrative, moving away from, I mean, for me, the the attempt to eliminate dread from narrative mm. um, has, has been so much of, of what my work's been about. Mm. Um, and the question of, you know, what is a human being? What, what is perception? Um, in the novel, that's a, mm. a, an incredibly confused, I mean, in the novel generally, mm -hmm. uh, 
it's a confused contract at the moment. Um, that's something that I've in my work tried to simplify. And, and yet I find looking at Simon's paintings, you know, the thing that I, I want <laughs> to attain, um, to resolve, it's, it's almost frustrating because I, I, I sort of feel it's so much easier to, to resolve in the image uh -huh. um, that, than, and the morality of the image is um, so mysterious, mm -hmm. so unknowable. Uh, and I feel that what Simon manages to do in, in this work is, um, I, I suppose, withdraw that to the point that, that almost you have to come and, yes. <laughs> as you would to, to a god or a shrine, or a, you have to come and pay it attention. You have to create it to, to an extent. Yeah. Um, which is very hard to do in the medium of language. Mm. Although, again, I guess, unlike a god or a shrine, which is sort of can generally kind of be an embodied image, something that one can perhaps read based on the, the codes that, um, that uh, society hands on to us, these codes are largely absent from, from your painting, Simon. I guess that's, um, is that that's sort of something sort of, it feels like a sort of an intentional withdrawing of that. That is record. one of the bases bases of my uh, way of working, which mm. is uh, I, I know through the way that people see that when they are presented with something that their brain is continually saying, "What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it?" Mm. And so we're searching what's in front of us, or we're looking at what's in front of us in the scene to interpret it. Mm -hmm. um, and that interpretation is done by recognizing a perhaps a small element of, I don't know, the wing mirror of a car, for mm -hmm. example. And with the use of our memory, we then say that's a car or yeah. a chair or whatever. Um, the way that memory works is that it is by association. So the more we see cars, the more we know about cars, but we also relate other things to cars. And so each of us have a pool of memories and associations that are related to that one image. Mm -hmm. Um, the difficulty in a world that has suddenly exponentially become incredibly visual. If you mm -hmm. think back to somebody's home 200 years ago, there might have been one picture. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. not only are there loads of pictures on the walls, there's on the television, on your phone, and so on and so forth. There's just the overwhelming amount of visual information, all of which is feeding into the plasticity of our memories of mm -hmm. our brains. Is it if I show you a picture of a spire of a church, um, you know what that is, and you mm -hmm. don't explore it. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I'm trying to do by removing the icon, by removing the symbol, um, is asking you to try and perceive the painting mm -hmm. without the reliance on an iconic memory. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And so that leads hopefully towards uh, an emotional ex a relationship with how do I feel about what I'm looking at mm -hmm. rather than something that is immediately uh, your perception can give attention to and therefore you understand what it is. Yeah, yeah. And I'll confess, I find that deeply troubling as, as somebody who is used to, very used to books and very used to sort of, even if it's not necessarily narrative about books working over a duration, you go, you, you know where you're going with a book for the most part, you're going from the first page to the last page and it's sort of the, the writer is, is taking you there. I suppose it's that, that sense of feeling deeply unsettled um, yes. by my inability, my, my, I guess my, my lack of training in uh, engagement with, with visual images. But I have the impression from the way you're talking about it that even if I had a training, that should, ideally that should not serve me in engaging with your work. No, there's two things that are missing. One is composition. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at, you know, the classic, let's take a Caravaggio, for example, 
the the brilliance of his composition allows him to tell a story, allows him mm -hmm. to give him narrative. So you look at um, John, uh, Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, Jesus in the particular context, and you say, okay, that's the story of. Mm -hmm. um, and because of his brilliance with composition, he guides the eye around the picture plane mm -hmm. to tell a linear story. Um, by removing composition, I'm not allowing, or I don't want uh, a, a linear narrative to be there. And by moving symbol, um, we're, we're also saying, okay, you need to explore this in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and and this is basically saying that by the the marks and the colours, um, those are meant to talk to you beyond the consciousness. Mm -hmm. They're meant to talk, communicate directly with an unconscious you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our listeners might be sort of aware of the fact that I haven't at any point tried to describe uh, <laughs> your, your paintings. And I feel reassured by the fact um, an essay uh, Chris Power wrote about your work where he said, this, you know, it's very hard to write about. It's very, it's very hard to describe. But perhaps uh, beyond obviously sending people to the gallery and sending people to, to your website and the cahier, perhaps one thing that might help people understand a little bit, it would be if we talked a bit about your, about your process, about how, how these works come together. So basically, um, they're, they're based on an aluminium panel. Mm -hmm. uh, that itself is purposeful. Um, it's not a canvas with a stretcher. So mm -hmm. I'm taking that icon uh, uh, as well, that meaning away as well. Um, it, uh, aluminium panels are, are used by painters, but not commonly. Mm -hmm. um, on the aluminium, raw aluminium is then a, a, an enamel ground um, uh, that creates the basis for what is then very, very thin uh, glazes of oil. Mm -hmm. um, so I put a glaze on that dries for several weeks, another glaze and so on. And that buildup of glazes over the months creates, um, because they're semi-transparent, um, the various color layers speak through each other. Mm -hmm. And so what that gives you is a, a glimmering sense of depth um, that means that the painting changes depending on the light conditions that are surround right. it. Um, the painting changes in t indeed in your relation to where you stand mm -hmm. because the way that the light refracts through those very, very, very thin layers of paint, paint um, create different um, movement effects. And, and some people say that standing in front of the painting, sometimes you actually feel that the painting starts to move mm -hmm. because of the way that the eye moves over this slightly different depths of, of, of paint um, creates, for some people anyway, a sense, mm -hmm. of, a sense of movement. And that... that, that uh, concept of the eye moving it's not just um, sort of anecdotal this is actually something which you have researched for many years I studied uh, human eye movements um, uh, to very quickly summarize it um, most of us think that we see like a camera does mm -hmm. in that everything that's in front of us we see but of course we are restricted by our what Rachel calls our perceptive rectangle mm -hmm. so 180 degrees wide mm -hmm. roughly speaking 120 degrees so unless I point my head I'm only ever going to see a partial part of what's in front of me and then our eyes dart around that scene. Mm -hmm. um, and we only take about two degrees in great detail from any scene. So um, right. our eyes um, rest for about 350 milliseconds on something mm -hmm. which we see with great clarity. Our paraphernal and our peripheral vision gives us the impression that we can see everything. Mm -hmm. um, we make about 150,000 of those little eye movements through the day. Yeah. So there's this, this continuing sampling of tiny little bits of information that gives us the feeling that we can see everything. Mm -hmm. And how does that sort of feed directly into your work? Is, is there sort of a, something from sort of 
from that that research which sort of feeds into the practice itself yes yeah, so so one is that uh as i so say the example of the caravaggio if you actually looked at people how they fixated across mm. that they would fixate across the composition so by removing the composition i'm asking the viewer's eye to travel over the scene mm -hmm. and what our eyes do is when we can't recognize what it is we tend to move more quickly and fixate more often right so we will huh. you will look at that picture more intensively than you would have done if you'd seen the church fire mm -hmm. i know what that is i don't yeah, look yeah, at it yeah, anymore. Yeah. um and so because of this unconscious what is it what is it what is it that our that our humans are designed to do mm -hmm. um the removal of the answer to what is it means that you're likely to cover more of the picture plane not just on the area of the focus that a particular artist has created mm -hmm. a composition to encourage you to do. Yeah, that removal of specificity, um, and I know it's probably a bit of a mug's game to kind of look for sort of direct overlaps between uh, between your two works, but it did strike me that um, that's something which, so for example, when when reading um, Quarry, the the essay um, in the in the cahier, there's a lot of, and this I think is something that comes out quite a lot in your in a lot of your recent work Rachel is this giving in, in some sense giving uh, a lot of uh, a lot of insight a lot of expression to to feelings and to things without specific details of those things so there's in one sense there is a real sort of exposure and another sense there's a kind of um I wouldn't say sort of impre imprecision but a sort of a withholding of names withholding of Specifically, there's a moment you talk in Quarry about an illness with withholding what that illness is, who suffered from the illness, etc., etc. Is that something that you would see as sort of a uh, a relation between between your two works? Um, I think that partly why I've gone in that direction. It's really an attempt to to sort of block off um, passages. Oh, to sort of fill holes around mm. the edges of, of what I'm writing. Mm. You know, if you if you start to name names and, and you, you almost allow the reader to escape your text and right. um, because then suddenly they have a, a, some information that, that they can start to, cr to create their own story out mm. of, as it were, or their own reality out of. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that some of that um, simplifying of... The, the sort of information um, content of, mm. of, uh, of the text that I write is, yeah, I mean, the, the, there are some similarities. I mean, I mean to me, the, the, the direction, the, the shared direction, mm -hmm. and Simon's probably further down the road than I am in this sense, is, is in the relationship to time. And, mm. you know, any text... It, struggles to to not exist in time right. struggles yeah, to yeah. free itself simply because you know it, it has to be uh consumed in time mm -hmm. um it, time is 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 essential yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. To, to it is a timed exercise you know reading and writing um you know i have a, a an ambition i guess um to to dispense with that element mm -hmm. altogether, um, but but that's a you know uh, nearly an impossibility. And what what I've found, I mean, I've lived with Simon's paintings for years, and and what is so uh, soothing and sane about them is this extraordinary absence of the dimension of time. Mm -hmm. 
there is no time. <laughs> they are, you know, they are without that dimension. And I think that for me is is um, the summation of, you know, all of these different ways of talking about the relationship between mm. perception and object and thinking and seeing and, and you know, how we exist as individuals in, in a concrete world. Um, you know, to, to and try and find escapes from time mm-hmm. yeah. um, in, all, you know, all the, the meditative and other things that, yeah. that we do to try and, you know, free ourselves even momentarily from, from that dimension. And that feels almost a, a paradox in a sense, because um, we, I mean, the, that idea of the vanishing sublime, I mean, it's something which uh, it's both, uh, it escapes from time and yet in some way it seems um, sort of inherently connected to to time because the um, well, it, actually, well, let's talk a little bit about that, the landscapes, because um, for, for you, when you look at the painting, is each painting drawn from some engagement with, with a landscape? How do, you, how do you work with that? Completely it is. So uh-huh. um, the way that I work is that, uh, for example, what we were doing in, in Greece, mm-hmm. um, I would be making fill sketches, usually with watercolour, possibly acrylic, mm-hmm. um, to capture... To some degree, the the reality of what what was there, the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the I don't know, the beach, the hill, the the, the church, the boat, um, but more the atmosphere, the feel, and so mm. these are my aid memoir, if you like, for the work that I don't do back in the studio. But each painting is directly related to a specific landscape, so mm-hmm. I can tell you that um, you know that is the quarry in Tinos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's 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 the point. But I don't title my paintings because. Um, which also goes to this point about perception is that if I show you a painting that's called Man and Dog, mm-hmm. the way that our eyes work will be to find the man and the dog. Yeah. Yeah. So, so by removing that, again, that that sort of director, um, you, I ask you to engage with the the the, the essence of the the, the place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily matter whether it was Tinos or or Brooklyn. Yeah. 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 And there's also that the sense. And one one thing I had when walking into the gallery this morning was about being in the presence of the paintings themselves seems incredibly important. And you know, I say that obviously with the caveat that not everybody who's listening to this will be able to come to the gallery. And the reproductions in the Calle are, I think, probably as good as <laughs> such reproductions can be. But there does seem to be something about your work um, which resists copying in a sense which resists reproduction what i there's several things that really amuse me about this um so we have a, a lovely photographer anna marker who who's um, photographs for the national gallery who mm-hmm. shoots the work and um she often talks about well, the, the difficulty of it because there is mm-hmm. never a finite version of the of the painting because right. i was saying earlier on you know with the light changes and so on they become different paintings of course landscape painting um was effectively decimated by photography. Mm-hmm. Photography changed the way that painters thought about painting, about yeah. making a record of the, of, of the location. Um, I love the fact that you now can't photograph the painting mm-hmm. of the location. Um, so there's a nice sort of you know sort of circularity uh, around that. Um, and I think that the, the essence of of the being with. Um, which means, and, and this is something that we, you, Rachel and I talk about a lot, is that each painting is a painting. Mm-hmm. A book can be published 35,000 times, 20 times, 400,000 times, um, and still remains 
the high quality that mm. one of Rachel's books um, is, this remains one thing. And that, uh-huh. so that so it's, it's um, identity as value changes as a result of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, recently I was talking with a Rare Books um, manager about the, the, kind of the glamour associated with the signed book and what people what people are looking for when they when they get go up to an author to get their book signed at the end of uh, at the end of a reading and it does seem to feel almost that there's they're trying to get a little bit of that unreproducible element that one finds in in artworks um Rachel is there a sense that sort of as a someone who works in the medium of I guess the inherently probably the most reproducible medium mm. out there that you kind of you envy about the the capacity of of painters to to produce these kind of uncopyable works. Oh, it's so I I, I feel so ambivalent about that idea because it's also responsibility. It's uh, also stuff taking up space. Yeah, yeah, you have to look after it. It can be damaged. It can be destroyed. Right. And um, you know things that can't be destroyed. Uh, I, I I suppose I associate. So, so many of those things with with um, femininity, you know, mm-hmm. you can't destroy your the history of what, how you've brought up your child. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That can't be destroyed. Um, I, I mean, a lot of what I write about in the Kaya essay is this idea of making copies and, mm-hmm. and making, you know, tourism, for instance, being um, an endless making of copies of, of touristic places. That, yeah, and, yeah. and actually, where is the original? You know, what, are we when we go to a Greek island, um, are we actually, you know, are we, are we only getting a copy? Of, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. You know, so, and, and I think, you know, the search for authenticity is something that um, we are all to a degree sort of beset mm-hmm. by. Um, I think there's, a, you know, a great yearning and, and desire um, for that, for, for the feeling of, of um, the original, for yeah. the feeling of something and, and books, I think used to have more of that texture mm-hmm. to them. Um, now the feeling that, that, yeah, you're buying something that, that whose reproducibility is, is, mm-hmm. is so evident. Um, so, yeah, I do. I mean, I have many reasons for envying <laughs> <laughs> visual artists, uh, partly because, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is identity, but, you know, right. one of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment, because, you know, I've moved to France mm-hmm. and I'm... Uh, communicating, reading in French and the feeling of um, release from uh, and indeed realisation of, you know, how uh, identifiable language is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part, part of what I like being here is that I, I can't place, you know, I can hear people talking in the street, or, but I can't place them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not hearing something that I already have a pre-existing idea mm-hmm. about and um i'm trying to extend that into my own writing practice to, to um almost give myself a chance to be reborn in in a language that has less mm-hmm. you know um identity inherent to mm-hmm. it and consequently for the readers i guess that comes back to this idea of not giving the readers the sort of the the signifiers by which to to interpret the work sort of making again making the readers do the the moral work of uh, of engaging with the, yeah. the artworks um, themselves. I, I mean, I think once you start examining how predestining, if that's, mm. <laughs> that's a word, <laughs> languages, phrases are, um, 
you realize that actually you, you don't, you know, how much control, how much power as, as a verbal artist, you know, can, can you ever really have in, unless you thoroughly interrogate um, mm-hmm. the extent to which phrases are, are forming mm-hmm. what you are, are, are predetermining your writing um, yeah. ra- rather than um, having some more natural relationship with, with vision and, and and that, that comes back to this idea um, of, yes, yeah, I said, this kind of the, the artist and the moral responsibility of the artist. And one thing we get while reading the essay inquiry is this sense that perhaps artists are more destroyers than creators, or at least sort of despoilers of the thing that they encounter. Um, and that made me think about the, the way, Simon, you talk about your practice and the way other people talk about it, it feels that there's almost this, that you sense a kind of moral responsibility in a way not to be a despoiler of the the, the, the thing, the scene, the landscape that you are engaging with. What I'm really interested in is the idea of record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so to record what, what is actually there rather than uh, perhaps what people might want it to be or the perception of, of, mm-hmm. of, of the, what they might want it to be. So I think the idea of record really interests me. Um, but the nature of acquisition is is that by painting a picture of a beautiful landscape, the sun settling over the sea and so forth, it makes that place appear attractive and mm-hmm. therefore people want to come and see and buy and be, as Rachel makes the point in the essay, but, you know, buy part of, of, of that that scene that was originally recognised mm-hmm. by the arts. Of course, that, that sunset has always been there, or the version of it. Um, and the people that live there don't notice it anymore mm-hmm. because that's just their normal world. But by the the um, marketing of landscapes or places or ideas by artists um, come everyone else who wants to buy a, a part of, mm-hmm. of, of that. And so in a, in a sense, I guess this kind of this record, it feeds into the um, the understanding we have of, of marble as well. I guess this is another thing that um, we might sort of seek to find, to find overlap is that to sort of, uh, it's 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 a record of something. It's a record of forces, but it, the rock itself doesn't contain any signifiers. Doesn't contain any sort of um, specific story, unless manipulated by man to become the presidential palace or the or the <laughs> or the, or the, the, the um, memento mori statue of and so on. Yeah, um, I think Rachel's point in the essay about. Um, that it's lifelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, it is merely a record of, of past activity. It has no nothing to say now or nothing to say in the future. Um, that it can go back in the ground or, or be, you know, the most visible thing. It, it still is the same, mm-hmm. the same thing. And that immutability and that lack of change is rare in most surfaces, materials, views that mm-hmm. we encounter. So we are recording this on April the 5th, so the day of the exhibition opening. It, our listeners will be able to hear it from April the 7th. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about what you have planned for the, the duration of this exhibition? So we're on for, for two weeks, uh, running up until the close on um, Easter Saturday. Um, on the 9th, uh, we'll be launching the cahier um, in the gallery. And then on the 12th, um, there'll be um, an artist's talk, mm-hmm. which presumably involves me, uh-huh. <laughs> um, from I think it's six till seven okay. uh, on the 12th. Yeah. And so all of that taking place in the gallery, in the gallery at number yeah. 28, uh, Rue Saint-Gilles. 
in the Marais. Marais. Yeah. And um, if people want to find out more, they want to see um, see your paintings, they can go to your website. Go to the website, simonscamelcats.com. Um, I'm sure you'll put that in the, Absolutely, in the, in the yeah. notes. Um, and uh, there's a, a folder with the new work. That, and, uh, and again, um, a lot of that new work is also reproduced in the Cahiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I said, if you are listening to this um, anytime between the... Uh, the 7th of April and Easter Saturday. And if you are in Paris or can get to Paris, uh, do come along to Rue uh, Saint-Jean because um, it's impossible to, to, to sort of convey, I think, the power of these these paintings until you're, until you're standing in front of them. Um, but Simon Skemmelkatz, Rachel Kusk, thank you for welcoming me to the gallery today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.